Don't know if you are familiar with the name Warren Wiersbe. You know the name? Some of you, back to the Bible teacher for many years. Pastored a number of churches. He writes a story in his autobiography about his first church building project. He was a young pastor in Indiana. He says that he and the church's building committee were working with a church architect named Frank Chute. And at one of the committee meetings, Wiersbe says that he learned a good lesson about architecture and theology, something that he hadn't been taught in seminary. Because in this meeting, he asked the architect, he said, Mr. Shute, why do we need such an expensive high ceiling in the auditorium? We're not building a cathedral. Why not just build an auditorium with a, a flat room and then put a church facade in front of the building? Wiersbe writes that in a very quiet voice, the architect looked at him and said, Pastor, the building you construct reflects what a church is and what a church does. You don't use facades on churches to fool people. That's for carnival sideshows. The outside and the inside must agree. Great story. Great story. We are, we are not out to fool people. It is what we are. It is reflective of who we are. And here we come today to celebrate the completion of a building program. And the building looks great inside and out. Thanks be to God. And it's been amazing how it has happened. We have, uh, we've seen the generosity of God's people off the charts in this year. You know, and I don't know if, if you've heard some of the same comments that I have from folks both inside and outside, our neighbors in the community, of just how wonderful the building looks. And uh, that has just been very, very special to hear those things. But I have to tell you, at the slight risk of being cynical, I know that comes as a shocker to you, that, that I would be cynical, ever so slight risk, just tiniest, tiniest chance of sounding cynical, there's this little question that kind of nags in the corner of my heart. Do hearts have corners? It's somewhere in my heart. There is this little nagging question that says, or asks, so what? So what? Or maybe, maybe it sounds a little nicer if asked this way, now what? Now what? A couple of years ago, CNN Money Dot com ran this article, a couple of, maybe you, you've seen it, um, about an online real estate listing. The headline said just this, converted church. Once it had been a church and now it was somebody's house. According to the realtor showing the house, desanctified churches are the number one type of building converted to residential use these days. The article said that the altar has been adapted for use as a granite and stainless steel-themed kitchen in homage to the cooking gods. That's a quote. That's the word they used. It went on. The choir loft has been rewired for a home theater. There was no baptistry, but there was a soaking tub, and among other things, a game room, a music room, and an exercise studio. All of this for the steal of $2 million. And there is one more thing. The 15,000-square-foot church-slash-home now has 11 bedrooms. 
So that will make sleeping far more comfortable than in the chairs or the pews. But evidently, there are quite a few of these desanctified churches available because according to the Barna Study Group, every year between 3,500 and 4,000 churches close their doors in this country. 3,500 to 4,000 churches a year. Oh, that just hurts my heart when I hear that. You know that there have got to be some really sad stories behind many of those closings. You know the name uh, Bono of U2 fame. He was uh, being interviewed some time ago and was asked about what was perceived by the interviewers, the often sullied reputation of the church throughout history. Bono's response was interesting. He said, you know, religion can be the enemy of God. It's often what happens when God, like Elvis, has left the building. A list of instructions where there was once conviction. Dogma where once people just did it. A congregation led by a man where once they were led by the Holy Spirit. Discipline replacing discipleship. Churches can change. We've talked about this before. We have said many times over the years, seven years that we have been in this building, that we don't want to be just a church in the community. We want to be a church that is for the community. Not just a church in the community, it's a church for the community. We also understand, theologically speaking, that that the church is not the building. The church is God's people, indwelled by the Spirit of God to live out the values of the kingdom of God in the world. But, But the thing is, in this country, most often the people of God gather together various times during a week, and they usually gather in a building, often larger than a home, and that building is viewed by those in the community as a church, is it not? I mean, the sign out front says, Applewood Community Church. And so that's how, that's how the community oftentimes understands the church. It is, it is the building on that corner. Now here's my point in all of this. Some of you are thinking, thank God there is a point in all of this. To be identified with this building in the community is unavoidable. You know, people know us as the church on the corner. People know us as the church with the garden. People know us as the church with, with the new front entryway. They come inside, they, they see other new things. It's, it's unavoidable that we would be identified with this building. And, and that's one of the reasons that so much effort and, and energy has gone into making it look nice. You know, it is... We, we understand that that, that can be a, a blessing to the neighbors. It can say something about, about our understanding of who they are and, and what we want for them to see when they drive past this place or when they wake up every morning and, and look across the way. That's a reality. And, and, and I think we need to be okay with that, and we are okay with that. But what we must never be okay with, my friends, is with allowing the building to become our identity. You see, see, there's a difference. To be identified with the building is unavoidable. 
But we always want to avoid the building becoming our identity. Are, are you with me on this so far? How we see ourselves in relationship to this building is what makes the difference between, I think, a church that is in the community, that's the neighbor's perception of the church that sits here on the corner, versus a church that is for the community. That's how we as, as the people in this place want to be perceived. It's the attitude of the people of God who are the church, who inhabit the building, which is not really the church, that contributes greatly to how the community around the building perceives it. How do folks see this place? We want them to see it as more than just the building on the corner, the church that is in their community. We want them to come to a point where they understand that, gosh, that could be my church too. I could be a part of what goes on there. Think about this in relationship to your own home, your house in the neighborhood. How's it perceived by the folks that live around you? Do you ever invite them in? Do they drive by your house and think, that's a nice house. I wonder who lives there. I wonder what goes on inside that house. I wonder what the people who live there are, are all about. Now, is, is what goes on here in this place, does it tend to be just for those who belong in this place, which could quite likely be the neighbor perception, because that's often what people understand about a church building on the corner? Or is it also for those who live nearby, drive past it all the time? I think... When God's people want to be more than just a church building in the community, and instead they determine to be a church that is a place, a people, a gathering, a congregation that is for the community, that wants to include the community, I think when we determine that, it will keep us on track. It will keep us on track. It will answer that question, so what or now what? Because we always need to be a people who are discerning and living out the difference between being that church building in the community versus being that church that is for the community. The church that, that... opens its doors and opens its arms to those who live nearby. This is, the, this is the course that I want us to pursue for the next few weeks together. We're going to camp in four verses, just four verses found in 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, and we'll be reminded of who God has called us to be And out of that identity that he has given us, what he has called us to do in this world. And so I've I've given this series the title, Living Out Our Calling. Because Peter talks specifically about being called out in this text to something. 
And I think these verses, they teach some very significant truths about who we are as the people of God together. That's an important emphasis in this text. We'll see that. Not as individuals, but as a collective bunch. There's something very important and very powerful about us together versus us as individuals. Peter states clearly the reason and the purpose that is behind this this collective identity. So this morning, I I just want to make some some contextual kinds of observations, a little bit of what's going on when these folks receive this original letter, and some observations that will hopefully set us up to to kind of push in this direction and explore more closely together the importance of, of living out our life, living out the calling as God's people together at Applewood Community Church. By the way, the entire letter of 1 Peter is five chapters. That is something that you could read every week. Every week you could read a chapter a day and take two days off. You could really be an A student, read the whole thing every day. You know, and there won't even be a quiz at the end of the week. You could read 1 Peter every week. And, and these four verses that we're going to camp in, just go ahead and memorize them. It'll be a great exercise for our brains together. Early church tradition places the Apostle Peter in Rome when he wrote the letter. The letter is addressed to Christians who are scattered across a wide geographical area. All of it was part of the Roman Empire. They share a common faith. They struggle through common problems. The problem that seems to be the most pressing as you read through Peter, you will discover this, is how they ought to live for God in the midst of a society that is ignorant of Him. Does that strike a chord in our hearts at all? How do we live as God's people in a society that is, that is ignorant of who He is? And, and they're, because they're followers of Jesus, they're often, as they often were in the first century, misunderstood and and subjected to to harsh and often unfair, even brutal treatment. That may not strike as much of a common theme, but I think it probably is going to become more and more of a theme in our lives together uh, over the course of the next few years, suffering for being followers of Jesus. The best estimates on dating this letter place it somewhere in the early to mid-60s in the first century, which would have placed it right during the reign of Nero. Nero was not a nice emperor. He made sport of persecuting and torturing and killing Christians. So imagine this morning that you are believers gathered together in one of those cities or regions that Peter is sending this letter out to. Cappadocia or Bithynia. You can, you can choose. Imagine that you're sitting there in a synagogue, although maybe not a synagogue because the persecution has likely heated up to the point that that's the first place that the Roman Empire is looking for believers. So you might be actually gathered together in in secret, in, in, a, in a home somewhere. A quiet, kind of obscure, off-the-radar kind of a place, worshiping quietly, 
perhaps not even singing, but just mouthing the words together. By the way, we have brothers and sisters all over the world who worship like that all the time. Uh, it's, just, it's just a fact of life. It's, it's, it's how they live. And a letter, as we are seated there together in that synagogue, or that quiet hiding place, a letter has arrived from the Apostle Peter, and as always, it's going to be read to the congregation. And so, here are some of the things that you hear Peter write to you. We have three readers this morning. And uh, I'll ask the first reader to stand and, and share a little bit of what Peter has to say to this group. How about our second reading? One more reading. Peter is quoting a lot there from Isaiah. Being a Jew, he is pulling some significant statements from the history of his people. He makes an application to you, to the congregations that are gathered, that are hearing this letter read, that there is something else going on. He's emphasizing that God is doing a new thing. He's building all those who believe in Jesus, regardless of their ethnicity, into a spiritual household, a place where God dwells, no longer the temple. It's a spiritual household, and it's built upon Jesus, the cornerstone, Peter says, the stone that is put in place to stand strong and support the remaining structure chosen by God and precious to Him, and all who put their faith in Him will never be put to shame. And then he writes that those who believe in Jesus, for those He is precious as the cornerstone of their salvation. But to those, Peter says, who do not believe, He is a stone that causes them to stumble. And he's a rock that makes them fall. In other words, my friends, Peter is saying everything hinges upon faith in Jesus. Everything comes down to believing in Jesus. He writes that that those who stumble over Jesus do so because they refuse to believe in who he is, and they are disobedient. So let's stand, and let's read our four verses together, following what you've heard so far. Together, here we go. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, 
that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Do you hear those words that Peter starts off with? But you, but you. Contrast words. Peter is assuming that those who are listening to his letter, they are there. They are there because they need one another. They are there under the threat of persecution and and possible death. They are there and they are dialed in and they are listening. They are believers. They have placed their faith for salvation in Jesus. And as a result of that, they have become, Peter says, a very special group of people. So listen carefully again. When Peter writes, but you, he's using the first person singular pronoun, okay? It's a congregation full of people. But you, oh individuals, you are a chosen people, plural. You, oh individuals, have come together to be a royal priesthood, plural. You, individuals, are a holy nation, plural. God's special possession. Peter is saying that in Christ, the identity of the individual becomes lost in the plurality of the congregation, of God's people together. God takes individuals and he puts them together into a plural entity. It's the body. We talk about the body of Christ. Talk about, talk about a blow to our American individualism. God is into numbers for sure, but, but he's into numbers for a whole different reason than, than we often are into numbers. So here's what I want you to do. With the verse right up here in front of you, I want you to talk with your neighbor and to decide what is the reason. It's clearly stated there. What is the reason that God has called us as individuals to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, in fact, God's special possession. What is the reason? Turn to a neighbor. Say, what do you see? What's the reason? Okay, what do you find? What's your neighbor say? Well, I messed with my mic. What's the reason? Ah to declare the praises. Anyone else? Okay, I like that. We're doing this together. Doug, go ahead. (laughs) What else? Greg? Okay. 
show who he is, explain what he's like, show his love, be an example. Doug, something else? Okay, okay, good, good. Anything else you want to add? John? Wow. We're going we're gonna to get to that in our journey. I, I just think if we really understand what Peter is saying here, these descriptions of who we, plural, have become together, um, I'm convinced it, it, it probably ought to blow our minds more than it does. So the purpose, you're on it, to declare, to proclaim the praises of, of who? Tell me again. I'm sorry, I don't think I heard you. Of God. The purpose that God has done this is to declare the praises of Him. The word that Peter uses is a word that that means to tell out, to speak it out, to declare abroad, to make public, to make known by praising or proclaiming. It even has the idea of celebrating. Woohoo! Boy, you look excited about this idea. Interestingly enough, it's the same root word as the word angel. Now think about that one for a minute. As the angels live in the presence of God, and as a result of being in His presence, what do they do? They show up on earth throughout the Scripture declaring the presence and the truth of God. It's the same root word. The idea is that as God's people live in His presence, they are so overcome with who He is that they declare His praises. Do you see how that works better together? John, one more thing. Yes. Yes. They'll be slopping around in the darkness. Yeah, yeah. Called out of darkness. Awesome truth. We were created by God to live in relationship with God, not for the purpose of doing things for God. I think sometimes we need to get over that. God doesn't need us to do things for Him. We, we certainly do things for God, but we were created to be in relationship with God so that we might enjoy God, so that we might praise and worship God for all of eternity. Uh, Pastor Kirby John Caldwell says, there are two great moments in a person's life. The moment you were born and the moment you realize why you were born. He's right. We were born to bring praise and glory to God. Have you ever wondered why the first command given in the garden to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply? Exactly. More praising. More worshipers. Fill the earth. With worshipers, there's plenty of room in the kingdom of God for worshipers. The more, the merrier. But of course, we know sin entered the picture and turned our hearts away from the one whom we were created for and convinced us that we could live apart from God. And that resulted in a fracture in our relationship, fracture in the community that we were created to live in. And it's through Jesus you know that we were restored to the relationship that God created relationship in which we are taken up with Him. We are, we are wowed with Him, spending our lives in praise and worship of who He is. And that is not intended to be an individual pursuit. G.K. Chesterton once said, influenced by Francis of Assisi, what would really satisfy us 
would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they are contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of the day, a good time was had by all. My friends, God is so much more loving than that. It is not what we were created for. We were created to live in relationship with Him. Take us out of that relationship and we die. Both physically and for all of eternity. Put us into that relationship and suddenly we find contentment and satisfaction and a deep sense of joy that can only come because we are now living out the relationship for which we were created despite the fact that life is hard. That's what Peter's driving at in this text and all through his letter, which you're going to read at least five days a week, right? Okay, God is much more loving than that. We were made to worship him, made to do that with others. So, praise team, you probably ought to come up and prepare to to lead us in a response this morning. This is where we're going to head for the next few weeks. What does it mean to be a chosen people? What does it mean to be a royal priesthood? What does it mean to be a holy nation? What does it mean to be a people belonging to God, His special possession? That is what Peter says we are. We're called out of the darkness, as John likes. Called out of the darkness into God's light. By the way, the word in the original language for church means the called out ones. Called out ones. Seems to me that a part of what we do when we gather together is to be reminded that we are the called out ones. Not the looking inward ones, not the fearful ones, not the hiding ones, but the called out ones. We're called out for God's glory. And so, how does that get lived out for those who see this church on the corner and wonder what it's all about? That's where we'll go. Amen.